Hello and welcome to episode four of The Artful Manager and thank you for joining us today. My name is John Cross and I have questions 10 and 11 for you to ask yourself. Raphael will pick up question 12 later. So question 10. Am I happy to hand out more responsibility and show more trust in my team members? And I'd like to start by telling you a little about a football match, a soccer match that I saw recently on television. It was between Arsenal and Tottenham Hotspur. The game ended 2-2. Very exciting, very enjoyable. But the reason I'm mentioning it now is to tell you about the contrasting behaviours of the two managers during the game. The difference between them was black and white. The Arsenal manager, Mikel Arteta, was as nervous on the touchline as a first-time bungee jumper who's told that the organisation's got a new rope as the old one had snapped. He gesticulated wildly, almost continuously shouting instructions across the pitch, whereas the Spurs manager, Ange Postacoglu, was the complete opposite. No hand gestures, no shouting, outwardly calm, expressionless, hands in his pocket, inner turmoil undoubtedly, but outwardly he was controlled. You would have thought that he was as bored as waiting for his wife to finally make a decision on which new dress to buy. Both teams played really well, but I couldn't help but think that. Through his behaviour, Postacoglu demonstrated a lot of trust in his players, leaving it up to them to make the adjustments they thought they needed to win. Arteta gave me the impression of a of a puppeteer fiddling nervously with the strings. He admits he just can't control himself on the touchline. It was fascinating to watch the contrast between them. Postacoglu was quoted in the press later as saying, We try hard to give them, by the players, the tools to find the solutions. We prep them, prepare them, for their exam on match day, but we don't know what the questions will be. They've got to work it out for themselves. Do you think you're more of an Arteta or more of a Postacoglu with your team? I imagine that the players, you know, look frequently, regularly to the sideline and witness the manager's behaviour. What does it tell them? Am I trusted? to do what I think is right, or am I not? That's way too simple by far, I know. But remember question two. Am I setting the right example with my body language and face? I'll let you decide. Try and watch Arteta and Postacoglu when you get the chance. You'll enjoy. But this question of trust is terribly important. Ask yourself, how much trust do you show in your team members? Now, I've had all sorts of different managers over the years, from the micromanagers to those wanting an occasional chat. And the one that I admired most let me do my own thing, run my own shop. We met, I don't know, once a month or so in a local wine bar. And the reason was he wanted to sound me out, get my reactions to a few ideas, a few innovations that he was thinking about. He did the same with my peer group. I felt during that conversation that I was trusted. I certainly didn't want managing every day, and he told me by his behaviour that he trusted me to get on with things. One year, working for the same company, I started working on a project which involved my company 
cooperating at a senior sales and marketing level with another international organization, which really should remain nameless, although it ended with a BM and started with an I. When getting to know my opposite number, I asked him, you know, whereabouts he fitted in his organization. He explained that his area was project-based, and as such, the project determined who was in charge. But I persevered and tried to nail it down. I came up with what I thought was, was a good question. Okay, but who signs your expenses at the end of every month? I do, he replied. Yeah, I know. But who countersigns them? Um, no one. I sign them and they get paid. My jaw dropped. I was dumbstruck because in my company, mine had always needed countersigning before being paid. Wow. There is a perceived lack of trust in many person-to-person relationships, sometimes at home as well as at the workplace. And, and I'm often told, you can't do away with checks and balances, John. I agree, but how this is done is important. Let me, let me tell you, uh, let me give you an example of something I came across quite recently, and it came from a member of the United Kingdom's police force. Now, as you know, public money is often given to informers, and as such, it has to be accounted for meticulously. So the expenses claims of police officers need to be verified and checked very carefully. I was told about one newly appointed district commander in London who was astonished that it took him almost one week out of every four to check all of the expense claims from his officers. He was operating and not managing. So he changed the instructions. This is what he wrote. As from next month, I will go through the three highest expense claim forms, line by line, together with the officers present who can then explain and justify them to me. All of the rest of the claims will get paid without checking. After that, the average amount claim dropped as officers tried to avoid being one of the three, and the commander could spend more time managing. Brilliant. And of course, trust has to work both ways. Your team members have to trust you as well. And by that, I mean that they should feel confident in bringing you bad news quickly and not getting criticised for it. If a manager asked, for instance, how is, how is Project X going? It's quite common for colleagues to feel a little constrained with their answers, perhaps polishing the positives a little, but holding back on the negatives, afraid perhaps that someone somewhere might get blamed, the finger be pointed. Now, as you know, there are few right answers in business, and the, the best managers want to know all the facts, the reality of what's happening, so that they can include it in their thinking, include it in their planning for the future. I note that on the autopsies reported on the collapse, the failure of companies, often refer to the attitude of top bosses who it was claimed, had a tendency to cover their ears when confronted with bad news. How comfortable are you when one of your more junior staff, perhaps, notices one of your mistakes or has an issue with you, brings it to your attention? How do you treat them? Now, I should mention here, right now, that it's much easier to do this in some cultures than others. For example, Relationships between bosses and staff can be much more formal in the Far East, where age and seniority 
make it much more difficult for a junior person to question somebody more senior. A 747 aircraft crashed after takeoff at Stansted, killing all the occupants because it was found that the Asian co-pilot felt unable to call attention to a serious mistake by his Asian captain. So we ask you to have a think about regularly reinforcing this principle with your team members, asking them, please bring me disappointing news, bad news quickly. I promise never to shoot the messenger, but I really do need to know what's going on so that I can try to help. Thank you. The Times recently reported on a study undertaken by Harvard that managers who don't demonstrate trust and, figuratively speaking, keep looking over the shoulders of their team members to double-check that everything's going okay, are risking the health of their staff. A Harvard study showed that those working for micromanagers are at greater risk of heart attack and stroke. The study involved 1,500 employees at an IT company and a long-term care provider. And before they started the trial, they took some medical health indicators from the participants, things like blood pressure and cholesterol. But also, managers were retrained to cut their workers more slack and allow them to make their own adjustments to their work as they thought fit. Managers were also asked to support the changes that their workers wanted to make to improve their own work-life balance. Now, that kind of been easy in my experience. Micromanagers like to be in control and are fearful of letting go, but the employees in this study knew what was taking place and used their new freedoms to make the changes they wanted. After 12 months, the health indicators were remeasured, retaken, revealing a substantial improvement. Equivalent, Harvard said, to those same employees being between 5 and 10 years younger. So what could you do tomorrow to show more trust in your people. Question 11. Am I setting targets and objectives that encourage commitment? Now, many managers think it's their responsibility to set objectives and goals for their people. That's kind of natural. But if you allocate them, there is a tendency that they can come across as your objective and not theirs. And if your people fail to reach them, then for whatever reason, some might be tempted to say, um, yeah, I kind of always thought that was a bit impossible. And their commitment to them may be weak right from the start. But if you agree to their suggestions, even if they're not perfect, of course, their ownership of them will be much stronger. They're actually much more likely to achieve them. Try to open an early discussion with each of your people, perhaps with something like this. Uh, uh, John, can I catch you for a moment, please? Sorry to interrupt. Look, um, we need to set a few objectives for the next uh, half year. Uh, year. Can you give it some thought, please, and let me have your ideas on the most important stuff? They should be familiar with the acronym SMART, but if not, suggest they do a bit of research before putting the objectives into that format. And we ask you to try and make sure that only one person, really, has the responsibility of achieving a particular goal. Uh, others may be involved, of course, but you want to avoid excuses later on, such as Oh, I thought Kevin was doing that. Once agreed, ask your colleagues to put their suggestions in writing to you with some kind of progress markers like uh, timescales or, or costs, etc. And then review them regularly. 
at a frequency that you feel comfortable with, bearing in mind their competency and their experience. And we ask you to ask yourself if targets, or in some cases even budgets, are needed. Now, I mention that because it is so difficult to set what would hope to be an accurate target at the beginning of a financial year. If you set it a few percentage points higher than the previous year's achievement, then you may discourage the enthusiasm, the energy needed from your team to reach it. But if you set it too high, on the other hand, of course, you may collapse that enthusiasm and motivation at the beginning of the financial year. I remember talking about targets to a managing director of a global clothing company based in the northeast of England. And I asked him how he managed to achieve spectacular growth, which was between 30 and 40% regularly, year on year. I talked to him about targets. And he said, John, we don't set revenue or sales targets. Instead, we provide accurate, up-to-the-minute, internal, external, operational data to everyone's fingertips. And we empower the people that see it to act on it quickly. Our teams take their responsibilities seriously and they have a terrific pride in their ownership of the adjustments they make. Targets may have actually restricted our growth. I'm not sure that the UK's National Health Service has found that having targets has been helpful or motivating and they don't appear to have had any material effect on their underperformance. In today's news, a company called SafeStyle has gone into administration. This company made and installed double-glazed windows and doors. The Times reported that one of the company's contractors claimed that poor management had contributed to the company going out of business. He said customers frequently complained about fitting errors and long waits for repairs. Errors at the depot meant incorrect parts were often sent out. Contractors complained of long hours and pressure that compromised quality. One even said that fitters sometimes rushed jobs because they were paid per window. And reading this report, I felt very sorry for the hundreds of workers who've suddenly found themselves without work because of a failure of managers and management. Once the focus of managers on customer service, customer satisfaction is lost, then every organisation, every team becomes vulnerable and their existence is threatened. Targets and objectives can become so powerful in the mind of a very small minority of people that they will manipulate, massage, or simply falsify the figures in order to claim that they've achieved them. The Guardian reported in 2020 that Matt Hancock, the UK's Secretary of State for Health, was accused of falsifying the number of coronavirus tests. And I remember that he'd set a target of 100,000 for the end of a, a particular month and then claimed that he'd actually achieved 122,000. However, it later transpired that over a third of the number he claimed had been sent out but not been processed. Not quite really what people had presumed or indeed expected. In order to hit their targets, I've known sales managers who've instructed their teams to sign up customers at the end of one financial year because of the promise to the customer that they could cancel without penalty early in the following year. I've also known better men and women who resign from their jobs when asked to falsify the numbers. Separately, I have heard many managers undermine themselves 
subvert their own authority, their own status within the organization by identifying with their team far more than identifying with the company that they work for. And it's quite common at the start of a financial year when targets have been handed down. And if you've been given one that you think is way too ambitious, you may be tempted to say, which is quite normal in a dispirited voice perhaps, our lords and masters have given us some really tough targets for next year, guys. I'm really sorry. Alternatively, you could have said in a more perhaps upbeat way, team, I have agreed to some stretching goals for the coming year as I know I have the team. Do it. Don't undermine yourself. I've also heard this often. Um, sorry, guys. Look, I've I've tried to get authorization for Project X, but you you know what they're like. You know they won't buy it. You do work for the organisation, not the team. So probably better to align yourself with the company and the policies rather than the team. Argue against them, of course, in private if you feel strongly enough about something. I suspect a lot of your people may have difficulty remembering your team's vision, mission, your team's strategy, the objectives, because they're often expressed in unemotional management speak. Often they paint a kind of grey monotone picture when really what's needed is a much more vivid portrait painted in, in primary covers, but above all, memorable. Consider now, if your team's ambitious goals connect with the, with the humanity, the feelings, the emotions of your team members, do they energize and motivate at a human level? Objectives with sticky headlines can endure and motivate for long periods and inspire. I remember two examples that I'd like to tell you about. They're quite striking. The first was called the five-minute suitcase and it was an objective to improve delivery times of suitcases from the aircraft hold to the carousel, five minutes from engine shutdown. Very memorable. The second was called the 24-hour packet of crisps, which in the United States would translate as the 24-hour packet of chips. And that was another sticky headline, this time of a food manufacturer who decided to use freshness as a competitive weapon. He, did, he wanted 24 hours from the baking oven to the supermarket shelf. Now, both of those examples proved challenging and extremely costly, but both succeeded. And I can't help thinking it was because of that sticky headline. Can you come up with the same kind of sticky headline for your objectives, your main goal? For example, if you were working in the construction industry, one of the typical main goals of any project would be zero accidents. But instead of using that phrase, which is kind of the grey monotone that we were talking about earlier, perhaps you could paint a more vivid picture, show a photograph of somebody they knew, name him, uh, somebody that had suffered a horrible accident, and the caption could perhaps read, make Graham's accident the last, or something similar. We believe that if you gave your team the space and the encouragement to come up with a sticky headline for themselves, we think that's an exercise very worthwhile. Good luck. Question 12. Am I delegating tasks often enough? I think this is probably one of the most pressing issues for most managers. Probably one of the most pressing that we've ever come across. 
I think if you pull managers in a survey or you just qualitatively know, I think most would say they don't delegate well or often enough. And yet, I think most managers know that if you can do this, it not only gives you the opportunity to show trust in your team, but it frees up time for you to do the things that as a manager, you should be doing more of. Now, what's the most common excuse? Well, this is what I often hear. Raphael, look, I get it, but if I delegate this task, then I'll have to spend more time briefing the person to do it and then answering the questions when it's up and running than it would take me the time to do the task myself in the first place. And yes, while I can agree and sympathize with this line of thinking, this misses a huge major point, which is that when you do the task and you don't delegate, you're denying each of your team members the chance for them to further develop their own skills and understanding with higher level work. And indeed, the more they take on, the less supervising you will have to do in the long run. We want you to supervise and operate less and to manage more. So having selected the job, the activity, and selected the person who you think might be up for it, if you're going to delegate, you have to ask them directly if they're willing to do it. Of course, with no pressure from you, give them the chance to say, I'd rather not, thank you. But if they say yes, this is when you should talk to them about how you want the work done, while at the same time giving them license to choose the way that they want to operate. Tell them that you trust them to do a good job and that you're always on hand if they want help. And finally, I would ask them this. So I'm going to consider, are you happy to take this on? And will you please, please tell me if this gets too much for you? And always wait for their yes before you agree and shake their hands and wish them good luck. We talked about gaining the important commitment device and getting a yes and a shake uh, of the hand is very, very important to that kind of commitment that you instill in someone. Now, if they come back to you with their plan and want to talk you through it or drop you a written note or email for feedback, please be aware of the need to guard yourself against a very natural tendency that you may feel. And that's the tendency to improve the plan, to add value. And if you simply can't resist making their plan better by demonstrating both your own experience and expertise, well, I must say you run the very real risk of changing their plan to your plan. And as a result, the ownership and pride that your team member felt before your contributions, well, that might be reduced and it might even evaporate entirely. In some circumstances, it just might be better to let an imperfect plan be pursued passionately than to try to perfect a plan and thereby destroy that commitment and motivation that the person had in doing it. But if your input is definitely required, and I would offer it without delay, as you don't want to become a gatekeeper preventing the work from going forward. Now, let's suppose that the task or project is up and running and you keep a careful but distant eye on it. You don't want to interfere too much, but you're gradually becoming a bit conscious that all is not going according to plan. You might be tempted to just end the whole delegation experiment there, but we would ask you to consider letting those mistakes occur and thereby allowing your colleague or colleagues to learn from them. Look, Mistakes are important because they're actually rarely repeated. I know of one senior manager who, being able to foresee most of the mistakes and errors, spends about a third of their time putting in backstops or insurance in place in order for when those mistakes do occur that they don't kind of damage the entire project or morale of the people involved. They do this because they want those team members to make those mistakes. Because with mistakes, the individual, the team, and the organization learns particularly important when you have new projects or newly formed teams. 
just remember, safeguard against any mistakes that might actually create a huge loss for you and the team. Now, sometimes your people will try to delegate back upwards to you. And if one of your people has a problem, an issue, or a challenge that they're uncertain of, what they might do is try to get you to make a decision or you to take responsibility for it. So it's not their problem anymore, it's yours. So you've moved the monkey that was on their shoulders back to your shoulders. Now, when I was working in London and I worked over for in London for over a decade, uh, one of my colleagues had a fantastic way of dealing with these kind of situations. So I'd like to tell you about it because I think the model that was used was actually brilliant. He sat in what can only be described as a sterile office. Um, for those history buffs, uh, Prince Philip of Spain, in his escorial manner, had an office that literally had a bed and a desk and a window. And he was, at the time, presiding over essentially the Spanish Empire. So you get the picture. No pictures, actually. No paintings, no photos of family, no certificates, nothing. Nothing to really show that this office was even occupied. On the desk, a telephone and a computer screen. That was it. No inner out tray, no paperweights, no files, no trade magazines, nothing else. So when any of his team members came to see him and to try to get him to take ownership of a particularly thorny issue, he always approached the meeting in the following way. He'd take one sheet of blank A4 paper out of a drawer and a pencil from another. He would ask for a concise statement of the problem or the issue. He would then record every detail of it onto that one sheet. He would ask lots of questions, probing questions, to ensure his complete understanding of the situation. He would ask if there was anything else to add, and if nothing, he would then ask for options on how to proceed. He pushed hard. He'd ask for even the most outlandish options until he felt satisfied. And then he would ask for their recommendations and ask them to justify which of those options they would pursue and maybe explain why other options were discounted. And he recorded everything that was said. This is quite a process, I, I know. And then he said that if he agreed with the recommendations, what would be the next three or four steps that would be undertaken? He recorded those as well. Finally, like a judge in a courtroom, he replayed everything he had written down and asked if there was anything to add. And so if not, he would go photocopy those notes. Remember, this is several decades ago. We had photocopiers in our offices then. Um, anyway, he would photocopy those notes and then he'd hand the original back to his team member by saying, I believe you've got a really good plan here. Let me know how you get on. Well, his people would leave the office a lot more confident about what lay ahead as they had been forced to think through the issue in detail and to think about alternatives. I think they appreciated the process. I think they were scared to go into those areas that they thought were risky. But if you follow through with your ideas and put them down and explore all the options, you essentially have got a roadmap and a plan ahead of you. Now, time for another true story. Uh, this one comes from a person who was a partner in a firm of accountants. Um, and they had responsibility for auditing a number of high-profile clients. And some of the most profitable happened to be the most annoying. And there was one terribly annoying and very ungrateful customer. In previous years, this person named Jane, we'll just use her, her fictitious name here, Jane had tried harder and harder to get a vote of thanks or compliment from this client, but without success. As an accountant, this is disheartening, to say the least. And she didn't like working for them. So as she sat in the bath one, one evening, as she related the story to me, she was contemplating the forthcoming audit. She suddenly had a eureka moment. Instead of putting her best people on the job, she would put her weakest, 
they would fall short of the customer's expectations. The client, which they disliked, would find an alternative auditor, which would then provide the excuse for her to dismiss this weak link and upgrade her team. Wow, a double whammy. Like Baldrick, she congratulated herself on her cunning plan before topping up her glass of Chardonnay and relighting the aromatherapy candles. Well, the following day, she called on these three weakest team members into her office, and she briefed them on the job ahead, warning them that this particular client was one of the most demanding of all her clients ever. Four weeks later, she arrived at the client's premises and was shown into the border, fully prepared for the worst. But guess what? She was shocked when the managing director shook her hand warmly and smiled and said, Thank you, Jane, at last. The best audit we've ever had. Back at the office, she later recalled the group together and asked how they managed to pull off what was essentially a cracking success. They were reluctant at first to talk until one asked if she could speak freely. Jane said, of course. Well, Jane, she said, we were more than a little surprised to be giving the job in the first place, knowing it was a difficult customer to say the least, and we were not the most highly regarded team or even thought we were qualified to do it. We couldn't think why you placed all this trust in us, but you did. So right from the start, as a team, we vowed not to let you down. We now know we did a really good job, and the whole audit has made us feel a lot more confident and happier at work. And now we know how to actually work together as a team with confidence, which we didn't before. Thank you. Thank you for giving us this opportunity. Well, Jane, of course, felt embarrassed, but of course, happy for them. She had learned a valuable lesson. Winners are sometimes disguised as losers, not because they lack ability, but because they lack motivation, trust, and confidence. Instilling confidence in your team is a very, very important part of why we want to delegate. Now, in the next episode, we're going to be much shorter. We're going to reprise the 12 questions that we've asked you to ask yourself so far in the series, and we'd actually love to include some of your comments about them. So we'd like you to please email John Cross at Isilon.com. That's John, J-O-H-N, C-R-O-S-S at Isilon, I-S-O-L-O-N.com. And we want to thank you for listening to episode four. Kevin, John, and I wish you well and good luck.